Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. Episode 141 is where the British and the Boers finally sign a peace treaty. But there's quite a bit to cover as we go about watching the days between the 19th and 31st of May, 1902. Remember how the representatives from both sides, Boerta, Smuts, Herzog, De Wett, Berger, De La Rey for the Boers, and Milner and Kitchener for the British, had decided to try and write a treaty together rather than separately through a commission. Nowadays, commissions seem to drag on for years, while the original concept of a commission was premised on the threat of a lack of quick action. There's no doubt that we've lost the ability in the modern world to think that rapidly. Commissions in the 21st century are proficient, at least in South Africa, at wasting time pandering to expensive lawyers representing a thicket of politicians rather than a direct pursuit of an objective legal conclusion. But back in Lord Kitchener's office in Pretoria in the week of the 21st to 28th of May 1902, the Boers were now aware that there was no way the British would ever agree to any sort of independence, and the British were aware that the Boers wanted to find an honourable way out of this war immediately. Judge Herzog put it in a nutshell when he said, I think that I am expressing the opinion of the whole commission when I say that we wish for peace. We on both sides are really desirous of coming to a settlement. This group of men then selected a subcommittee composed of Judge Herzog and General Smuts, along with Lord Kitchener and lawyer Sir Richard Solomon, that drew up a schedule, including rules for those who signed or refused to sign an oath to become citizens under the rule of His Majesty King Edward VII. Before discussing that document, Smuts asked, If we were to sign this document, would not the outcome be that we leaders made ourselves responsible for the laying down of arms by our burghers? To which the imperial hawk, Lord Milner, replied, Yes, and should your men not lay down their arms, it would be a great misfortune. And so they continued debating each point, but inevitably building trust and mutual respect. Nothing improves a relationship more than a desire to find an outcome rather than stating a position. The first draft had already been telegraphed to the British government on the 21st of May. Privately, Lord Milner followed it up with a confidential note to Chamberlain saying he would have no regrets if the British cabinet rejected or radically amended the proposals. They have become far too generous towards the Boers, said Milner. This, of course, was behind Kitchener's back. Milner thought Kitchener's judgment had been clouded by his desire to bring the war to an end and even personal sympathy for the Boers. As historian Martin Bossenbrook observes, no matter how relentlessly they fought on the battlefield, though, the military men soon found themselves on common ground. It must have been strange for some to observe these men. Ian Hamilton, for example, who was Kitchener's chief of staff, he had just handed out one of the biggest defeats suffered by the Boers just over a month before at Rudeval, and here he was, part of a dinner held on the 24th of May to celebrate Jan Smuts's 32nd birthday. Hamilton wrote a cheerful letter about it to Churchill explaining that he had been sitting between Boerta and De La Rey, with the vet on Boerta's right and Smuts on De La Rey's left. They had swapped anecdotes about all the escapades, and he had a splendid evening and never wished to eat my dinner in better company. The cabinet replied eventually, with few changes, largely editorial amendments. So it was then that the subcommittee completed its document and the delegates reassembled in Pretoria on the 28th of May. Amazingly, the most pressing problem that emerged in the previous few days was not the franchise of black South Africans or even the treatment of Cape Afrikaner rebels. It was about the debt. 
You see, the Free State had borrowed money from the Transvaal to buy arms and ammunition before the war, and now the Free State has wanted to know who was going to honour debts which could come to over half a million pounds. As you'll see, the English agreed to honour the debt indirectly by providing three million pounds instead of the one million they initially thought it was required to rebuild the country. And all interest on debt was to be scrapped, debt that had financed a steady flow of blood for almost three years. The final treaty was read in Dutch and English. It was short and to the point, and signed by Lord Kitchener of Khartoum, Lord Milner, High Commissioner, Messrs. Berger, Reitz, Boerte, Delaray, Meyer and Kroch on behalf of the South African Republic, aka the Transvaal, and Messrs. Steyn, Brebner, De Wet, Herzog and Ulefeud on behalf of the Orange Free State. There were ten main clauses, and the document was only around a thousand words long. First, the burghers would lay down their arms and surrender all weapons and cease fire. Second, the burghers outside the country, including prisoners, would swear an oath of allegiance to the English king and then be transported home immediately. Third, those who do so will not lose property nor freedom. Fourth, there will be no judicial proceedings against Boers for actions during the war except for those committing war crimes. Fifth, the Dutch language would be taught in all schools in the Transvaal and Free State and in courts. Sixth, the possession of rifles will be permitted in the former republics through licensing. Seventh, the military administration of the former republics shall be replaced by a civil government through a representative system. Eighth, the question of granting a franchise to black South Africans wouldn't be decided until a representative constitution was granted. Ninth, no special tax would be levied on the former republics. And tenth, three million pounds would be provided by the British government to the former republics for rebuilding, covering things like seed, cattle, implements, shelter and other financial needs. Lord Milner pointed out that this was a free gift. And in addition, more money would be made available in the form of loans, which would be interest-free for two years. And afterwards, the interest would be fixed at 3%. But no foreigners or rebels of the Cape Ornatel would be allowed to receive the special loan. Then the delegates agreed the Boers waiting back at Vereniging had until May 31st to accept these terms. General Boerta asked if Boers could erase any paragraph when they took the treaty back to Vereniging and Milner glowed, saying, There must be no alteration, only yes or no is to be answered. An emphatic and final word. There was one more thing. The rebels. Lord Milner was succinct in his view. His Majesty's government has to formally place on record that the colonists of Natal and the Cape Colony, who have been engaged in fighting, shall be dealt with by the colonial governments in accordance with the laws of the colonies. These were stringent, but if you step back, not unfair, for those who admit to high treason and who have not murdered blacks or English troops in cold blood, they will be allowed home, but they would lose their right to vote in both parliamentary and local elections. Those rebels who occupied high positions in the Cape and Natal would face legal ramifications. Although no capital punishment would be inflicted, they may go to prison, but they won't be hanged. At seven that night, the Boer representatives climbed aboard their special train and headed back to Vereniging. Luckily, we have extensive notes taken by clerks through this entire peace process, and the Reverend J.D. Kestel was kept very busy over the next three days, starting May 29th. In Vereniging, there were two tents set aside along with the main marquee, 
These housed the Free State and Transvaal representatives. At first, the Boers caucused in the main tent, and by now most had heard of the British Ten Commandments. A tense debate took place which echoed the previous week's discussions. The Boers had sent their representatives off to Pretoria with a wish to continue their independence, and here they were, back with a document that clearly eliminated that option. Boerter, De La Rey and Smuts were the main defendants of this new document. Herzog and De Wett were against the idea, but their signatures were on the initial commission paper. Boerter had also realised during the discussions with Kitchener that there were far more hands-uppers now fighting with the British than he had known. There were at least 10,000 Afrikaners fighting for the English and more were likely to join the longer the war continued. Boerter mentioned the women and children again. At that point, at least 20,000 were dead and this weighed heavily on the men who met at Vereniging, as Boerter put it. Further prosecution of the war would mean the destruction of our national existence. Smuts stood firmly behind Boerter and De La Rey also urged the delegates to adopt the proposal. However, the two free staters were against, although Herzog was wavering. De Wett was his normal fire-breathing self. Let us persist with this bitter struggle, and we say with one voice, we will persevere no matter how long until we secure our independence. Isn't it amazing to think that had this hardliner got his way, the entire history of South Africa would have been different. You can speculate about the Boers being crushed eventually, scattered through the world. The British would have taken over South Africa, lock, stock and barrel, and in would flood the eight Londoners. Who knows then what would have happened with regards to things like the Union of South Africa in 1910, the Land Act of 1913, not to mention the rise of apartheid after 1948. But back to the real world. The Boer delegates in Vereniging were torn. They spent two days on the 29th and 30th of May mulling the arguments. One of the significant characters, President Stain of the Free State, was too sick to attend. In fact, he was in a British hospital in Pretoria. General Christian de Wett took charge, and Smuts and Boerter prodded and pressed him to change his view. In the evenings, the Free State Boers went to their tent, and the Transvaal Boers to theirs. They were separate but equal, and could still not agree. The clock was ticking, and May 31st was a day away. Vice President Berger of the Transvaal was one of the last to speak on the 30th. We have become weaker and weaker, and if we persist, the end must be fatal. What grounds have we for expecting that we may yet be victorious? What shall we gain by going on? Nothing. In all probability, this is our last meeting. Fell a tree, and it will sprout again. Uproot it! And there is an end of it. The struggle cannot continue. Early on Saturday, 31st of May, General Louis Boerter and Coeur de la Rey went around Christian de Wet's tent to try and make headway. Up to that point, they could not even agree on the procedure that merely allowed the representatives to vent their views in sometimes lengthy soliloquies. That was not going to produce a decision. It was suggested that Smuts and Herzog would compile a list of all the arguments then submit these to the delegates, and then leave the final decision to them. The vet agreed. Smuts and Herzog were now up against the clock. They set out the reasons in favour of accepting the British proposal, the ruin of the two republics, the collapse of the Boers as a nation, the destruction of their property, the suffering of the women and children, 
ominously, the increased participation of blacks and coloreds in the war and the likelihood that the British would finish off the Afrikaners by escalating confiscation of land, ultimately killing most, if not all, Boer fighters who are now without horses. Smuts had stood before these men and said, There is no justification in proceeding with the war, since that can only lead to the social and material ruin, not only of ourselves, but also of future generations. The argument to continue fighting was now limited to honour, and a vague notion that at some point a country like Holland or the United States or Germany may come to their aid. But all delegates, even De Wett, knew this was folly. They were on their own, and time was up. Herzog mentioned that the British government had been forced to increase the corn tax at home to pay for the interest on the sum borrowed for the war. But the Boers' horses were dead. The country was exhausted. Their own people were turning against them and more than 10,000 now fighting for the British. After an agreement on process, the Boers split again with the Free Staters and Transvaalers heading off to their own tents. The debates became more strident as each man began to mentally prepare themselves for what would be a bitter surrender. The hardliners also knew they were now a minority amongst the folk, the people. It was the people who wanted an end to this terrible war, and those who wanted to fight on were outnumbered. It all boiled down to a simple vote at 2.30pm on Saturday 31st of May. A vote yes or no. Do we accept the terms of surrender or not? The end came swiftly. 54 Boers voted to sign an end to the war, 6 wanted to continue, three Transvaalers, three Free Staters. There was utter silence as the vote was carried out and utter silence after the results were counted and made known and documented. The war was technically over from that second. Men who had fought stoically were crying tears of bitterness, a loss of a covenant. Their independence forfeited to one of the most powerful empires the world has known. Vice President Berger was the only leader at this point who could find voice, and he said, We are standing here at the grave of the two republics. Let us not draw our hands back from the work which it is our duty to accomplish. We must be ready to forgive and forget whenever we meet our brethren. That part of our nation which has proved unfaithful we must not reject. He was referring to the burghers who joined the British. This reconciliation would be a long, hard road with many more battles within the Boer fraternity to come. Later that afternoon, as the delegates gathered one more time and set up a committee to oversee the return of the women and children to their homes from the camps and empowered to draw up regulations when it came to the reimbursements by the British, Commandant Jacobs read, This meeting further decides to send abroad from the above-mentioned committee Mrs. C.R. Tavet, L. Boerter and J. Delaray, in order that they may help in collecting the above-mentioned donations. They were now Messrs. De Wet, Boerter and Delaray, no longer generals. The peace had immediately stripped them of their documented rank. Then, this, the last meeting of the two republics was closed with a prayer. Kitchener's representatives who were outside were called in and another deathly silence fell over the ranks of soldiers who had fought so courageously for their cause. Boerter announced formally to the English that the meeting had adopted the British government's peace proposal. There were now hurried preparations made for the formal signing ceremony, 
Berger, Reitz, Boerter, De La Rey, and two executive council members, J.L. Mayer and J.C. Kroch, signed on behalf of the Transvaal. De Wet, Herzog, and two government members, W.J.C. Brebner and C.H. Ulufir, signed for the Orange Free State. The Burg Clark, who'd been faithfully recording proceedings, wrote, I saw the lips quiver of men who had never trembled before a foe. I saw tears brimming in eyes that had been dry when they had seen their dearest laid in the grave. Then, just before midnight, on the 31st of May, a train carrying the signatories pulled in to Pretoria Station. Lord Kitchener and Lord Milner were waiting for them in Melrose House. It took five minutes to complete the formalities. Berger signed first, and symbolically, Milner lost. The Boer War had officially come to an end. For many minutes, apparently, those present merely sat together and said nothing. Finally, Kitchener broke the silence. We are good friends now, he said. The Boers stood up and left for their hotels. Kitchener and his staff retired to celebrate their departure from South Africa and the £50,000 victory grant which Parliament was to vote for Kitchener to receive personally, he immediately cabled Parliament to put the fortune into South African gold shares. Milner had looked ashen-faced and ill at the signing. Of all those present, he was perhaps the most unhappy, as bizarre as that sounds. He had lost the great game of mastery for South Africa. He had precipitated war along with Rhodes and others three years before, and now Kitchener, who he had regarded as a military idiot, had outwitted him and actually saved the Boers. He had managed to stop Kitchener from agreeing to a date at which time the Boers could resume self-governing rights, but he had bought some time for himself and his creche, who wanted to flood Johannesburg with English speakers. New blood would begin to arrive in the Transvaal to get the goldfields up and running. Furthermore, Milner knew a special loan would be made available by the Werner Beit Group to pay British settlers in their thousands to arrive on the felt. And yet, his main aim to crush the Boers completely, to rid the country of the folk, had failed. One of these men is our narrator, Denis Reitz. In his book Commando, he says at this point, Of the sting of defeat I shall not speak, but there was no whining or irresponsible talk. All present accepted the verdict stoically, and the delegates returned quietly to their respective commandos to make known the terms of surrender. Raitz himself was spared the ordeal of returning to break the news to his colleagues back in the Northern Cape. That was General Smuts's tough job. When he came to take leave of me, he said that he dreaded the task of telling the men, and our hearts were heavy at the thought of the disappointment awaiting them. We shook hands for the last time, and then he too was gone. Thus ends this war. I shall return next week to the final figures and wrap up some of the national effects that were to follow. Then, over a few more episodes, I'll cover the futures of some of the most important people from this war. Churchill, Gandhi, Boerter, Smuts, Haig, Saul Palaiki, and others for about two or three more episodes. Then we are done with the series. Thanks to Colm and Bill, who sent me great messages this week. Colm, for keeping my facts straight. And Bill, who says he listens to the podcast every week with a handy bottle of old brown sherry nearby. It's because of listeners like you that I've lasted this whole series, which has taken five to eight hours a week of my time as a labor of love. 
When I started the series in 2017 after searching for a podcast on the Anglo-Boer War and finding none, I felt it historically important that someone should have a go at telling the story because it's so bloody amazing. I'm sure you'll agree. Well, that's it for this week. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. You can send me an email through the website abwarpodcast.com and if it's really urgent, you can direct message me through my Twitter feed at Des Latham. So until next week, goodbye. Sorry, Marissa, like we did, can sell me scat at the beer hackery. And sonder Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom.